Well, September has flown by, hasn't it? I want it back. <laughs> uh, we are already finishing this series. It just feels like yesterday that we started, but imagine us. And I hope that your imagination has been running and that you're thinking about the kind of pe- people that you want to be, the kind of people God has called us as Christians to be. So let's, let's look into God's Word this morning for instruction and for inspiration about what it means for Christians to be generous. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading God's Word. We're reading from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. John 6, 1 to 15. The scripture's on the screen behind me, and let's read together in one voice. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half of a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John chapter 6. This is your word. And we are reminded, God, that you are a wonder-working God, that you still do miracles, Lord. You did it in the Bible, and you can do it today. And Lord, you're calling us to be generous people, people who understand your heart and your mind. Lord, I pray that we would become partners with you today, that as we are obedient to the word of God, we will take our very little and you will make much of it, that you will meet the needs, Lord, surrounding us. Lord, you care for each person. You have the eyes of compassion upon your people today. There's people in need in this place, and there's so many more people in the community. And Lord, we can participate with you, and there can be mass miracles Mass miracles when we participate with you, O God. So help us to tap into the power of your word, to the power of obedience and the power of generosity, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, each of the four Gospels are unique. They're unique in recounting the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the passion narrative of Jesus as he goes to the cross. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each writer has carefully compiled a series of teachings and events and miracles from Jesus' life for a particular audience they are addressing. And when we layer these four Gospels on top of one another, together they give us a full picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they share a lot of similarities with one another because they're drawing from the Gospel of Mark as a reference point. The Gospel of John is distinct from the Synoptic Gospels, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus, unlike Mark and Luke. And unlike Matthew, who was one of the 12 disciples, John was one, not only one of the 12, he was one of the inner three disciples. We come to the feeding of the 5,000. This is the fourth of seven signs in the Gospel of John. And the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, catch this, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. This story is important. You find it in Matthew 14, 30, 13 to 21, Mark 6, 31 to 44, Luke 9, 12 to 17, and John 6, our scripture, 1 to 15. This morning, I would like to share with you three insights taken from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, that will teach us about what biblical generosity really means. The first point I want to share with you this morning is that there are no excuses. Can you say that with me this morning? There are no excuses. We find this in verse 5 to 9. When Jesus looked up, And he saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy. With five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? There's a problem. There's a lot of people in front of Jesus. Jesus needs to do something. The disciples need to do something. And this event took place at the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. 5,000 people traveled to the location identified by Luke as Bethsaida, located at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. This is the location for the miracle. And while Jesus and the disciples traveled by boat, Mark 6.33 tells us, but many who saw, him, uh, saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of him. They are eager for Jesus. Jesus had compassion on them, and he healed them, and he taught them. And the disciples would have preferred for them to disperse, for the crowd to disperse for the day, so that they could return to the surrounding villages and the countryside to find food and accommodations. But Jesus is not satisfied with their answer. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they depict Jesus placing the responsibility for feeding the hungry crowd on the disciples. You give them something to eat. But they come up with various excuses that day, reasons as to why they cannot 
feed the masses. The conversation then narrows. It narrows to a conversation between Jesus and Philip, followed by a conversation between Jesus and Andrew. And why did Jesus turn specifically to these two disciples instead of to all 12 of the disciples? Well, it's because Bethsaida was both of their hometowns. See, John 1.44 confirms Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And ironically, as we read this portion of Scripture, Peter never says a word. Usually Peter is the first one to pipe in. This is crazy. We can't do this. But it's not Peter. It's Philip and Andrew. I want you to take note every time you're reading the Gospels. Take note of the direct speech of one of the 12 disciples. Because while we know very few details about each one, their direct speech gives us a better understanding of their personality about their humanity, and about how they viewed God. If there's something God wants to teach us today, by using the excuses of Philip and using the excuses of Andrew in their responses. Let's look at Philip's excuse in verse 7. Philip is more practical. He's a numbers guy. Perhaps he's an accountant, and he quickly crunches the numbers in his mental calculator. You can just see him just thinking and, and, and calculating everything. And when Jesus proposes the idea of purchasing bread that day, Philip pointed to the financial challenges that hindered the funding of this feeding program. Philip would say, we cannot afford to be generous. Sometimes we have that excuse too. I can't afford to be generous. And you really know the value of money when you quantize it into that amount of hours and the amount of days. Often when I tell my kids we're going out to buy something and they want to buy something special for themselves, I'll tell them, do you know how much that really costs, dad and mom? Do you know how long I have to work in order to purchase this? And then all of a sudden they have an aha moment and they realize how much it's really worth. Philip was a realist and a pessimist. As a, relay, as a realist, he states that it would take 180 to about 200 days to purchase enough bread. That's a lot of days' work to get that bread. As of 2017, the average salary for Canadian employees is $51,000. And divide that by 365 to get a daily rate, multiply that by 200 to get 200 days, and you have almost $28,000 just to feed the 5,000 people some bread. As a pessimist, he adds that it would not only be enough to take one bite, the true pessimist. You could just imagine Thomas, the doubter, and Philip, the pessimist. They could just be the best of friends. As you can see, the pessimist is more inclined towards sarcasm. See, what Philip missed that day was the Jesus factor. He missed the Jesus factor. Certainly a few shekels plus God could equal a miracle. God could have done it with just the few that they had, the little that they had. But Philip didn't see it that way. With Jesus, you must learn to expect the unexpected. Now we turn to Andrew's excuse in verse 9. Andrew was a very different person than Philip. Andrew was a resourceful person. He was a networker of people. He was a socialite. 
And he brought his own brother Simon Peter to Jesus. In John 1, 40 to 42, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Had Andrew not been the networker that he was, Peter would have never become the apostle that he was, the preacher that he was, the letter writer to the churches that he was. Andrew was an optimist. He really was. But he was not an idealist. As an optimist, he realized that since he didn't have the food, maybe there was somebody out there who had some food that day. And he was the one who located the young boy with his lunchbox, with his lunchable, really. Five meager barley loaves and two sardine fish. That's all this little boy has. And Andrew would say, we can be generous, but only to a few. Doubt is what held Andrew back from his idealism. And while he had located the resources, he still doubted the potential to fill that large need. While many of us agree that Philip was in the wrong and Andrew was in the right, I think we need to view both of them as lacking faith. Jesus' generosity test is designed to help them to continue to discover that they need to be totally dependent on him rather than dependent on themselves. Jesus asked of them a question in order for them to reply and to recognize their need for him. What question is Jesus asking you today, my friends? And how would you respond to him? How would you respond? Perhaps our response should be to quote scripture. I would quote Matthew 19, 26, back to Jesus. With man and with woman, this is impossible. But with God, friends, all things are possible. Jesus often referred to children as examples to illustrate ideal behavior. In Matthew 18, 2-5, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. All three synoptic gospels omitted the boy. Mark, Matthew, and Luke missed the boy. He is not in the story. But John, he was there. He remembered the boy. In a crowd of 5,000 men, this boy is the generous one who offered Andrew his lunch. And Andrew saw what Jesus saw. Because Jesus had set up this test. He knew there was a boy. He knew there was food in the place. And so finally, Andrew saw what Jesus saw. Verse 6 tells us Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew from the very beginning that this would be how the story plays out. And when it comes to generosity, do we have the childlike faith, the main ingredient for miracles? Philip didn't understand it. Andrew somewhat understood it. But that poor, unnamed boy, he was, he was poor. He was bringing barley loaves. That's the lowest kind of grain that you could have in the ancient world. This poor boy, this unnamed boy, he completely understood it. 
The boy with five loaves and two fish received so much more than he himself gave. And we often do little with a lot, but God always does a lot with a little. Second point this morning is there is more than enough. There is more than enough. We find this in verse 10 to 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. The generosity of God in the feeding of the 5,000 alludes to two instances of more than enough in the lives of two Old Testament prophets. The first one is the prophet Moses. God demonstrated generosity through the prophet Moses. Early in the days of Israel's wandering in the desert wilderness, we read in Exodus 16, 11 to 18, that God generously provided manna and quail to this grumbling people, this ungrateful people. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the ground, around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each one, each person you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. There was enough. And this wonder bread, oh yeah, this wonder bread. You know wonder bread, right? All right. This wonder bread fed more than 6, 600,000 men and their families. It is estimated that when Israel left into the wilderness with kids and wives and everything, slaves and everything, they had two million people in total. God generously provided in the midst of complete scarcity. I just want to let you know, if you're having a hard time, if you're in lack for anything, we serve a God who can meet us in our scarcity. We have a God who will meet our needs. Secondly, we see that God demonstrated generosity through the prophet Elisha. Early in the days of Elisha's prophetic ministry, we read in 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44, that God generously multiplied 20 loaves of barley bread, hey, barley bread, for 100 men. Scripture says, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, he, uh, the servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, a man of simple words. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate it and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. To put this in proper perspective, the original ratio for Elisha was 20 loaves to one person. 
but the needed ratio was 2,000 loaves to 100 people. God generously multiplied the bread 100 times over. Sometimes we read them, we just add 20 loaves, it's nothing. 100 med, it's nothing. This is a big deal. 100 times over. The question for us is, if God did it in the past, could Jesus do it in the present? In the present. We read the Bible and we read the old stories and we just wonder, don't we? These are nice stories. These are powerful stories. They're telling stories. God seems like a really awesome God, but I don't see it in my life. I'm here to tell you today that if God did it in the past, friends, God can do it in the present today. So the question is, do we trust him? We must understand that Jesus is the better Moses. We must understand that Jesus is the better Elijah, just as Elisha was the better Elijah. This is exactly why verse 14 affirms and exclaims, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Later in the same chapter, John 6, 35, Jesus then makes an audacious claim, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Holy One. He is the great I Am. And He is present here today. Jesus personifies our very need. And He is more than enough for you. He's more than enough for me. He's more than enough for all of us. I marvel at the fact that Jesus performs this miracle not just once, but twice. Twice. In Matthew 15, 32 to, 30, to 39, and Mark 8, 1 to 10, Jesus performs a similar miracle in another region near the Sea of Galilee, and uh, he does it among 4,000 men and their families using seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And when we combine both events together, Jesus fed a total of, catch this, 9,000 men and their families with 12 loaves of bread and at least five fish. I mean, that should make it astronomically more impressive, more amazing. We're not talking about the Western nuclear family of two parents and one or two children. We're talking about the ancient Near Eastern family with two parents and many children, lots of kids. And when both feedings are combined, we approximate that Jesus is meeting the basic needs of 40 to 50,000 people. This is a big deal. Before we move on, I want you to take note of Jesus' methodology. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven for the bread and the fish before distributing them to the people. This is just a friendly reminder from the scriptures to give thanks before you eat. Don't forget, sometimes I forget too. We should always stop and thank God for what he has given us. Even Jesus, the Son of God, understood that the only way for generosity to turn into a miracle of mass multiplication was to pray. The secret to the miracle was prayer. There's lots of rich philanthropists in our world today, and they make large donations to various charities that make a physical impact in our world, but they cannot accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish. Just as people were dependent on Jesus, Jesus was dependent on the Father. Are you dependent on him today? Because he is more than enough for you. John 6, 11 details that 
Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. You know that feeling? You go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you go to the Mandarin, and then uh, you come out with the sensation, you want to go to sleep, it's called a food coma. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. It's a real thing. Uh, you know, for those who are, how many people are from the West Indies? Uh, okay, that's called the itis, right? That's itis. It's that feeling where you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I need to take a break. I can't do anything for the next three hours of my life. And you just sit on the couch and you veg. This is what they were experiencing that day. They ate as much as they wanted. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says and what he prays in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. We alluded to, to it this morning. Now to him who is able to do what? Immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the people of God said, amen. This is the truth. He can do more than we can imagine. He can do exponentially more. So entrust him with your finances. Entrust him with your resources. Put it into his generous hands and pray. And Jesus will multiply your gifts so there'll be more than enough, not just for one person, but for tens and hundreds and even thousands of people. Jesus can do it. We might be living in a place of scarcity, but we have a God of abundance. Third point this morning is there is always extra. There's always extra. Verse 12 to 13. With, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the, to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When God, through Jesus, had generously gave the people, uh, given the people extra bread, he intended that the impact of the multiplication of bread be felt the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. It wasn't just a one-day miracle. It was supposed to last a whole lot longer. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, one basket for each disciple. In the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven baskets left over, maybe one basket for each day of the week. Just imagine how many more people beyond the 9,000 men, the 40 to 50,000 people that 19 baskets of bread could feed. Have you ever thought about that? That's a lot of bread. We must steward the extra that we are given just as carefully as we steward the little that we had. It's all about stewardship. Today, how many people have one of these containers in their fridge? Maybe it's a li lying around in your kitchen uh, drawers. You have this. It's called Rubbermaid. And I mean, these guys must be millionaires, billionaires. They must have it all because this little contraption sells like crazy. The worst part of this creation, I think you know where I'm going, is finding the right lid to match the container. And I get frustrated when I'm in the kitchen because once there's leftovers and I need to pack them up, I can never find the lid. 
I can never find the lid that matches the container. How many people have uh, this experience in their lives? See, over the course of our lives, we have received God's generosity time and time again. But you and I are guilty of this. We put the extra in our spiritual rubber-made container. We delay. We put that container in the fridge and forget that it's there until the food molds. And then you have to purge the fridge, and it's gross, and it's, I hate that part. Some of us, we consume, we eat the remainder of the food the next day for ourselves without ever sharing it with another person who may be hungry in our house. And third, we waste. We prematurely throw away the food in the garbage because we have so quickly forgotten about what real hunger feels like and we start longing for the next miracle. But friends, this is why Jesus will not entrust us with more. He explicitly said to his disciples in verse 12, let nothing be wasted. Let nothing, friends, nothing, not a little bit, nothing be wasted. In 2017, the National National Zero Waste Council conducted research on household food waste in Canada, and the results showed that 63% of the food Canadians throw away could have been eaten. So that's not good news for us. This is all because we're heavily engrossed in a consumer culture where we want the freshest thing, we want the newest thing. Why are we letting God's generosity go to waste when it can be shared with so many, so many, so many more people? Don't bring me all of your leftovers, okay? I I know what's going to happen. One of the highlights of my week each week is going down to our gymnasium to serve at Feeding Frenzy. And on Thursday evenings, you enable us as a church to cook home-cooked meals for 200 to 300 university and college students. And they meet together in our gym. It's like a mass movement in our city. They come from the universities and the colleges and they just walk down King Street like a movement. And they drive their cars in the parking lot and they bring their friends and they're all there in that place. And the struggle that the team faces is that it is impossible to predict how many students will come each week. It's a guessing game. I think we're good at guessing, but it's still a guessing game. There were some times in the previous years when there was an influx of students, and we just didn't have enough food to serve them. And the team prayed, and God literally multiplied and stretched the food. I'm telling you, he did it. I've seen it. And at the end of every meal, students come prepared with what? The rubber-made container hoping that there's just some leftovers for them. And more often than not, I'm so glad that we can do this, they not only receive a meal on Thursday, but they also take home an extra meal with them on Thursday for Friday. And that's really nice. But here's the best moment. I wait for these moments. I'm always looking for these moments. The best moment is when they tell us that they're taking food home for their roommate or for a friend who couldn't make it out due to a project, a paper, or exam. I'm telling you, that happens a lot. That's a real friend. Nothing is wasted, and the extra can be used to be generous to others. Let nothing, let nothing, friends, let nothing be wasted. 
X-ray is that portion that results from the partnership between generous people and a generous God. It is the gift that keeps on giving. So what are you doing with your extra today? With God, there are no excuses. There's more than enough. And there's always extra. I think it'd be wise for us to end this sermon and this series by returning to an old tradition. Something that has slowly faded from the life of the church And I'm talking about reciting the Lord's Prayer. This was the prayer that Jesus modeled to his disciples as he was teaching them how to pray. I've heard Albert Moeller refer to the Lord's Prayer as the prayer that turns the world upside down. It really is. And if we're going to imagine us and ourselves being authentic, being present, being compassionate, being hospitable, and being generous, we need to remember to pray kingdom-minded prayers. Because the miracle happens when we pray. Now, anything that we recite can become rote. I think the Lord's Prayer, the reason why we don't read it or recite it anymore, is because it's become rote for us. It means nothing to us anymore. But don't let these words be meaningless words. Let them be the most meaningful words that you pray today. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes? Would you join me? in praying this prayer of the church based on Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Pray it from the bottom of your hearts, friends. Pray it sincerely to the Lord because I believe he will hear it and he will answer it. We serve a generous God. Would you pray in one voice with me? We'll do it nice and slow. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth As it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we extend it for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is our prayer today. Lex orendi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. As we pray, so we believe, so we live. Amen.